Hey y'all, welcome to Abundant Living and Gardening Podcast. I'm your host, Aji Asir, and you can find me at ajiasir.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find me at patreon.com backslash ajiasir, and that's been a lot of fun so far. I want to give you an update of last episode when, yes, the um, people came out and cut half of our nectarine tree and about a third of our apricot tree. Y'all found out that the power company did it. So now I have to file a claim and everybody's passing the, the buck and say, I, you know, it's their fault. It's their fault. But anyway, the truth is these people hopped over our fence and cut half of our nectarine tree and a third of our apricot tree. And I'm still livid. I'm still livid, but you know what? It is what it is. I'm not fighting, getting ready to fight with fools. I'm just going to file um, the complaint and all of that. I don't really have the energy for that anymore. I don't. I don't have the energy to fight that. So that's that. Today, y'all, I wanted to come in and talk to you. I was just... Um, cutting back this goji berry and I'm going to be digging up this goji berry bush and I'm thinking about this goji berry bush and what it has served how it has served us for the last seven years or how we've served it or how it served nature and um, it hasn't been much it hasn't been much at all gratefully unlike you know goji berry has this reputation of spreading and being invasive and all of that. Gratefully, it has not spread throughout our garden space. Um, I have found a few extra shoots, but let me tell you why it hasn't spread. I never, ever, ever see birds eating goji berries. I guess they know like these things are gross and they pretty, they are pretty gross. And the only reason goji berry is not indigenous to this area at all. It is indigenous to China, I believe. And the only reason I planted it was a few reasons. I wasn't even really seven years ago. I was doing things a little bit differently and I wasn't really paying too much attention, unfortunately, to um, the effects of this goji berry in our land space. And I planted it really seven years ago, our soil was crap. Like nothing would grow. Um, There were no, there was no real life in the soil. There were no visible signs of bugs. When we first got here, everything was sand. It was pretty lifeless. Okay. Um, And after we put down the cardboard and we did that sheet mulching. The bugs started coming and the bugs, of course, they took everything out because that's what they're supposed to do. They are coming in and they're helping you rebuild this soil in this desolate, desolate space. And so they're going to eat everything that you put down and everything that you put down is probably not going to be very healthy as it grows anyway, because of the soil, the soil sucked. So the goji berry was the only thing that would give this space some kind of visual interest. It is a beautiful plant. I love the way it grows. It's kind of like sunshine, the way it grows, but there are other things that grow just as beautifully. And just at the top of my head, I'm thinking about like a bush, St. John's wort, the indigenous St. John's wort 
the one that's indigenous to North America, the ones that are indigenous to North America, because there are quite a few, um, even a native rose bush would have looked right good right there, although you'll have to deal with thorns if you try to plant around it. But there are so many other beautiful plants that would have just looked spectacular in this space. So the birds didn't eat it. Now, nature did use it sometimes. Um, we have a family of rabbits and they would run under the goji berry bush, you know, if they were hiding or whatever. And sometimes I, you know, well, all the time I pick the, pick the goji berries and I would dry them and keep them in the cabinet. And I tell you, we still haven't eaten much. Maybe I'll put some in the, in our smoothies this morning from like goji berry harvest from maybe two years ago, cause they're still dehydrated and sitting on our cabinet. Um, the chickens, when we had chickens, they loved goji berries, but you know what? Our chickens were Asian and maybe they said this feels like home. You know, I think those chickens might have been from China originally. And, you know, that was a part of their ancestral food. It's not part of mine or ours and the beautiful beings that live around here. Our ducks do enjoy goji berry leaves. So I am going to be, as I'm harvesting, well, not harvesting, as I'm digging up and cutting back, I am going to be giving the ducks the leaves. I'm also chopping and dropping leaves around the space to add extra, you know, moisture and mulch around the space. Speaking of which, I want to talk about dry farming really quickly. So we haven't gotten much rain we haven't, it hasn't rained here in weeks. And this is kind of rare for May because May, you know, in spring in this area, we generally get a lot of rain. We get in the Chicagoland area gets the same amount of precipitation as Seattle. You know, Seattle gets all the publicity about it, but the Chicagoland area gets the same amount of precipitation and our precipitation includes snow, too. So this winter, we didn't have much snow and it hasn't rained much in the last couple of weeks. Our neighbors not talking bad about our neighbors at all. Our neighbors have their water running to water their grass. Everybody's grass looks like hay, but our yard is lush. It's lush. And we, I'm a dry farmer. I don't um, water our space. I do water the plants that are in buckets or whatever. Um, but the plants that are in the ground, I do not water. I water them in, meaning when I first plant them, I do water them. And that's the, and I water them with rainwater. And that's the only water they get. But I also harvest humidity. This is a humid area. We are, you know, we're the Great Lakes region. Um, so we have Lake Michigan here and our harvest and we have the Calumet. Unfortunately, the Calumet is horribly polluted because of the steel industries. That's another topic. If I go down that topic, y'all, I'm going to get very upset, like, I'm so freaking pissed off with what U.S. Steel and the steel industries are doing to this sacred land here, um, the land of Powhatami, the land of Miami, the land of all the indigenous people. I'm just so pissed off with what um, U.S. Steel. But I, again, I'm not going to go down that route. So we do have um, the Calumet River here. 
we have um, Lake Michigan and there's a lot of humidity in the air. It's not a dry place. Um, so when we do get heat, we do get high humidity. And so I am gathering, I'm harvesting that humidity into my garden space. And how am I doing that? That makes no sense. Aja, what are you talking about? I harvest humidity by planting my plants close together. So even when it does not rain in the morning, I can go outside and there is like dew and the plants look wet because they are close together. They're sharing the dampness. And, you know, they're not alone. I'm not planting one um, corn stalk over here and one cabbage way on the other side of the space. No, everything is planted very close together. And so they share the dampness. And also I mulch a lot. So if you are, it's just so interesting. If you are farming or not, not, I'm not talking about large monocrop farms. I'm talking about urban farms right now, because that's what I'm going to talk. That's what I do here in Indiana. If you are f- farming or gardening specifically, specifically gardening in this area, and you're finding yourself use, uh, using a lot of water, there are some changes that need to be made because there is really no reason to water your space in our area. We get a lot of rain and it and this is the prairie land as well. So if you plant like a prairie, you don't have to have all prairie plants. I do highly recommend that you do have indigenous plants. But if you plant like a prairie, plant close together, you chop and drop, you're dropping um, leaves and whatever you're getting a lot of growth from, you're dropping that through your space, just like the prairie would. As things die, they fall and they go into the soil and they keep, you know, adding that moisture. Um, here I mulch, I have used wood chips. I still use wood chips. I also have been mulching with the duck waste and that's added moisture as well. So the ducks, their, their waste, unlike chickens, their waste is diluted because they drink a lot of water. And so their waste is more watery, more diluted. And so I do mulch with the wood chips that are in their run, Um, and that's added moisture as well. I'm going to be today as I am digging up this goji berry and I'm going to be replacing it with some, um, other plants. So I have some sweet potatoes to plant today. I have some broccoli. I have a whole bunch of stuff to plant today, a whole bunch of stuff, cabbages. And so this goji berry has taken up some real, some valuable real estate in some of the sunniest space in our, in our space, in our garden space, in the front yard. And so I'm going to be digging that up and I'm going to be doing some in situ composting, which is another way to add more moisture to your space. Now, I'm not going to be adding bokashi and I've done a, uh, a, 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 not a class, but I've, I did an episode about Bokashi. I'm not going to be doing Bokashi in, in C2 composting. I am going to be pulling scraps that I have frozen um, in the freezer. I'm going to be pulling those scraps out, those, those vegetable and fruit scraps, putting them in a paper bag and putting them in this hole 
and when I dig out this goji berry and then I'm going to be covering that up with soil and then I'm going to plant. And it probably sounds crazy for people who are so used to composting, you know, making your piles and you're like, oh, wait a minute, isn't that going to burn your plants if you put down the vegetable and fruit scraps into the ground? I've been doing this for a while and I tell you, this is a practice that has been passed down to me from generations and no, it does not burn your plants. For one, you're planting the scraps about two to three feet down into the ground and you're covering that up with soil and then on top of that soil you're planting and then of course you're going to be mulching around those plants i'll probably be mulching with some mulberry leaves that i have here um, around the plants once i get that in the ground and so as those frozen fruit and vegetable scraps thaw, that's going to be extra water for those plants as well. I will be watering them in with, oh, I don't have to water them in because we are expected to get some rain today. It's supposed to be a thunderstorm. This is why I was outside digging up that goji berry this early. So I'm like, I really want to get these plants in the ground. It doesn't look like it's going to be a thunderstorm. I don't even smell rain just yet. And that's another thing. When people water their yards, when people water their grass, when our neighbors water their grass all day, it's like it, it confuses my senses because I'm like I'm smelling for rain and sometimes I'm, I'm smelling their water holes. But um, yeah, it doesn't look like it's going to rain just yet, but we are expected to get thunderstorms. So I'm excited about that. So once I put the in-situ composting down, that's going to thaw out and I'm going to water the plants in and that's going to be added moisture. And of course, the plants are going to be planted close together. They're going to get just enough space to grow and to flourish. And you would be amazed at how much plants need. They don't need much at all. They don't need like with, with my tomatoes, I would say, and this is something I've, I've done differently this year. I planted all of my tomatoes together. I never really do that. And this is pure, probably laziness. <laughs> I didn't feel like spreading them around. But my tomatoes probably got three inches apart which I am totally good with. I don't stalk my tomatoes. I don't put them on stalks. What I do is just let them go free. You know, tomatoes naturally, the wild tomatoes that I grew last year, I don't have any wild tomatoes this year, but my wild tomatoes that I grew last year, they just grew free, honey. And they were great. And that is, those are the mothers of tomato. That's the mother of tomatoes. So tomatoes know what they're doing. They can grow free. They can sprawl across the garden. Hey, do what you do. What you do. But I only put maybe one or two inches between the tomatoes. So plants do not need a lot of space. And again, if they're planted close together, they are going to be sharing humidity. And that's one of the ways that you can harvest humidity. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty excited about chopping and dropping today. <laughs> I know, like, who gets excited about this? I do, I do, because everything looks so lush and everything is growing so beautifully, and I haven't watered a thing, and it hasn't rained. And I really think that 
farming, gardening, all of that, it has to take a different, we have to take a different approach because what is happening is not working. And I know people who run their water to water their grass all day long. I know that the bills have to be expensive. And who wants to pay a high water bill when it's not even necessary? It's not even necessary to pay a high water bill in this area if you want to garden or farm. So if you are interested in gardening and you're like, oh, I don't want to spend a lot of money on my water bill. Bills are going up, period. And can I even afford to, you know, spend more money watering? You do not have to water if you live in an area, specifically if you live in an area such as this. But let me tell you, dry farming is nothing new. I was watching, and it's very ancient, as a matter of fact. It's an ancient practice, dry farming. You know, people depend on rain. That's generally speaking, that's what people do. Now, there are ways to um, guide the rain towards your space. That's still considered dry farming because you're not constantly out there watering. You're utilizing nature. And so there are people in desert lands who dry farm. I was watching a YouTube video with some Hopi indigenous people and they were dry farming. And it was a very hot and dry climate. And they use many of the same practices that I use. Um, and they were dry farming. Now, there were some things that I do differently. Um, and if they were in front of me, I would have asked some questions because there are some things that I do differently. I didn't see any chop and drop. I did see it looked like they had cleared the land prior to planting. That's another thing. I don't clear a space completely if I'm getting ready to plant. Why? Because those those um, weeds and all those other things, quote unquote weeds, and all those other things are also sharing humidity with my plants. And they are very wise and they know how to grow. And if I'm planting my cultivated cabbages near some wild, I don't know, some wild lettuce, some opium lettuce, the opium lettuce is going to be teaching my cabbages how to grow and they're going to be sharing humidity. So I'm not clearing a space. I am only working with the space that I need. And if I need more, then I branch out and get more. And I take in consideration the indigenous plants that are already growing. And I hope that makes sense. I wish I can show you a visual of that. Um, how I do it. But I hope it makes sense. It's just giving honor to the plants and also giving honor to the space and also giving honor to the rain and all of those things that um, help your garden grow. But yeah, this dry farming thing is nothing new. And it is widespread. You don't have to be in an area. Obviously, you don't have to be in in an area that gets the amount of rain as Seattle. So thank you for joining me today. I am getting ready to go back out here and finish this work with this goji berry and hopefully get some of get all of these plants in the ground today. Look forward to talking to you and ta-ta for now. Oh, check me out at ajayasir.com and patreon.com backslash ajayasir.